Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. Before we get started, I should mention the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Society, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, the institutions of any of our guests. So today we have a, an episode on a topic that's recently been a real hot topic. And one, and that is that it, it's one that's affecting a lot of practices, but has not been much talked about. And this is the enlarging influence that private equity has had upon orthopedic surgery and specifically upon shoulder surgery. So to discuss, we've invited two guests. First, we have Dr. Kevin Boner of the Jordan Young Institute, a private practice in Virginia Beach. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, Peter. And uh, I appreciate the invitation for this uh, unique topic. And then next, we have Dr. Paul Sethi, who's of Orthopedic and Nursery Specialist in Greenwich, Connecticut. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Peter. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so thank you both so much for coming and spending a couple of minutes to bring with me to talk about this. And so this has been a topic that's been frequently whispered about, but there's not been a lot of great information. So, Paul, perhaps you could first start by telling us, what exactly is a private equity fund? Yeah, I think that's a great question, and it's important to understand. Private equity funds are, are businesses that invest in other businesses with private money. So instead of taking instead of taking your money and investing in the in a Wall Street firm like you might do with Fidelity, private equity firms collect money from investors and they choose to buy companies and they buy companies in certain groups and their goal quite simply is to make the company that they buy more profitable and then be able to sell that company. Uh, so it's it's a strategy for investing that, that's, that involves private money buying companies typically. And it's different than venture capital, it's just as a brushstroke, because the venture capital individuals are again, private industries, but they're looking, or private money, but they're looking to invest in companies that don't really exist, that are more fledgling companies that, that are pre-market. So th these, are, these are looking at companies and they're looking at making companies, existing companies more efficient um, to, to make them more profitable. Okay, now, so Kevin, tell us what what are the usual goals from the purpose from the perspective of a fund? What are the usual goals of this kind of investment when it comes to in, investing in a group of doctors, a private practice? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that um, in terms of getting into medicine, you know, orthopedics, uh, private equity started investing in orthopedics in about approximately 2018, but there's been somewhat of a track record previously with other fields such as dermatology, ophthalmology, and other specialties. So, so basically, you know, orthopedics is relatively new to this um, over the last several years. I know that Paul has been involved um, a little bit longer than we have, certainly. Um, and so, you know, when we started looking at this, I went back because I knew we didn't have much of a history in orthopedics and, and started talking to other specialties regarding, hey, you know, what are we getting ourselves into? Is it worthwhile? Because, you know, quite honestly, you know, Peter, if you asked me 18 months ago or, or certainly two years ago, you know, um, you know, private equity has somewhat certainly of a, um, a negative connotation amongst doctors. And it's really a, has a certain stigma associated with it. So that was, I was in that camp a couple years ago. And then as we started looking at our options, uh, and really seriously looking at this, because previously I would have said, listen, we're just not interested. We're actually doing really, really well for a private practice group. It became more and more apparent that despite the fact we may be doing well, that may not serve uh, us well into the future 
regarding, you know, when we read the tea leaves in terms of what's happening in medicine. So we started taking deep dives, looking at other practices and, uh, you know, even previous prior to orthopedic surgery. Kevin, I don't want to interrupt you, but that's exactly the first trend, right? So, you know, Peter, I know we're talking about what is what is private equity, but let's step it back for a second. Like, what is any impetus for change or what's the demographic in medicine now, right? And, and if we look at the American Medical Association or what they report in the Journal of the American Medical Association, starting, you know, in 2012, the percent of physicians who are in private practice are, is starting to cut down and cut down, right? And in, in, in 2017, I think there was an egress of, you know, somewhere between 14 and 20,000 physicians from private practice. And then in 2022, for the first time in the history of medicine, the number or the percent of doctors who are in private practice dipped below 50%. So that's never happened before. The second trend that's happening at the same time is doctors are converging over to larger size groups. So look, the simple facts are that Private practice is, is, is dwindling year over year for at least the past decade. It's now at its nadir or lowest point. And the question is why? And just like Kevin said, at least in the subspecialties, we may not be dying on the vine just yet. But if you try and predict the future, and what did Niels Bohr say? It's very hard to make predictions, especially about the future. But the cost of delivering care to each patient is going up. And year over year, whether it's the cost of, of rent or, or each of the things we do, it costs more money to see each patient. This is accelerated by COVID where the, the non-physician employees, I mean, I don't know if you pay attention to it, but each of our MAs, x-ray technicians, MRI technicians, each of the front desks, they're all making a lot more money and maybe it's appropriate for them to have finally caught up. But the simple fact is, is that we, it costs us more money. Reimbursement is not going up. So it simply eats into the margin and how you can how you can pay your physicians in a profitable way. So there's this setup out there that, that makes it more challenging. Kevin, I don't know if you guys felt the same thing in Virginia. No. Yeah, no, absolutely. And in fact, you know, and going beyond that, you know, there was a recent AOS study that about 48 percent of orthopedic surgeons work in private practice. And and beyond that, about 51 percent of those groups had 10 surgeons or fewer. And and basically, those surgeons have to manage both clinically and then the financial aspects of their medical businesses. And, you know, most doctors have not gotten MBAs, and we love taking care of patients, and most of us think we're pretty good doctors. But, you know, quite honestly, it's really hard to keep up on both medicine and, and staying up to date in, in, uh, with our practices and our clinical skills, but then also on the other side, being, you know, a great business person as well. And a lot of us, quite frankly, don't enjoy the business aspect. If you ask a lot of your partners, they hate it, you know, having business meetings, but it's the truth that you have to do that if you're with a private practice. And so, you know, just like Paul said, there's, there's increasing negative income pressures because of reimbursement trends and what's probably going to happen in the future. And, and what a lot of people maybe don't realize in the private practice setting is based on these margins that Paul mentioned, you know, if CMS cuts us, let's say by 3% or 4%, well, guess what? The impact of that on our W-2s is not three or 4%. When you look at margins, it's probably closer to eight to 10%. And that just gets worse and worse and worse as the years go on. And, you know, we've been very fortunate um, for a long time to do well. But again, if you look at future trends that we're probably not gonna be as lucky going forward, and the question is, can we do things on the front end um, 
maintain our clinical independence in terms of practice, practice medicine at the highest level possible without, quite frankly, businessmen and, and Wall Street telling us what to do. And I think we can do that, quite frankly, if you work out everything properly. And I think that's really the biggest reason why a lot of us have begun to look at this versus two to three years ago, when quite honestly, we wouldn't have answered the phone if somebody from private equity called us. So Peter, you know, let's just back up for one second. So so I think this is, this explains why, like if you own a practice, you might now might seem like a good time to sell. Tell me how, from the perspective of a business being bought by private equity solves those problems for you. So what it does, I mean, it doesn't, nothing solves anyone's problems, right? And whether I choose to, I'm going to answer your question in a second, but whether I choose to realize that, and when I realize that my, my future may not be as, as bright because of the, the shrinking economy around me, I can either sell my practice to a hospital organization, I can join a multi-specialty practice, or I can try and fight it out. Um, uh, or, you know, this newest thing in orthopedics, at least in the five years or four years, is private equity. We can go through each of the pluses and minuses and the rights and the wrongs for each group. But what, is, what happens? What happens to your business? Well, you know, you identify a private equity partner and after a, a quite a long, you know, vetting process of you meeting them and then meeting you and making sure that your visions and your views are aligned. And there's probably four or five major players um, in, in the field that, that have orthopedic experience. You decide, gosh, you know what, let's do this. Well, at the end of the day, the private equity company, if you choose the right one, and, and Kevin's, Kevin's with a solid group of individuals as are we, they're not interested in the practice of medicine. In fact, in Connecticut, it's illegal for them to be involved in the practice of medicine. So never in any moment are you saying, look, you have to see six more patients a day, or you have to inject this material, or your surgical conversion rate needs to be this. I mean, the truth is, the goal of the, uh, of the business superstructure is twofold. One, to lean on economy of scale, meaning that if me, Peter, you, and Kevin all joined up, you know what? We don't need three different phone services and three different, uh, three different servers. We could probably link those together. We could probably take our benefits package, right, and put them all together and get a little bit of a better deal on benefits. So there are savings in that way. And then the cool part is that can we then leverage our scale to deliver better care? Can we look at new electronic medical records? Can we look at at better ways of communicating with patients? Can we buy better surgical equipment because now we have a bigger buying power? That's, That's what the business size does. As far as the delivery of care, the way that I or Kevin or anybody in our organizations is gonna see patients indicate surgery or, or do anything medically, that no PE function, at least the way that I, I know Kevin and I have governed it, is that that's just not even in their repertoire or in their role. They don't want to do that. Yeah, I mean, Peter, for our, I echo what Paul said. For our goal was, listen, we wanted to walk in the next day, the next month, the next year, and the next five years, and never really having noticed, you know, negative implications of, you know, um, our our scribes, our physician's assistants, our nurse practitioners, you know, the last thing in the world we wanted to do is have them start coming in and cutting costs so they could make a little bit more money, but at our cost in terms of our clinical practice. So, you know, these are all the things you can discuss in the front end, and it comes down to really vetting who you're talking to and to make sure that you're well aligned. And it really is a partnership, quite frankly. And as Paul said, they have no interest in making one happy. In fact, it's the opposite. 
they have an interest in making sure that you maintain um, the happiness of your practice, they don't interfere with your practice, because in the end, you're their number one asset in the end. And, you know, if Paul and I got up here and said how unhappy we were, that's going to spread like wildfire and they wouldn't be able to acquire any more groups. So in the end, we're their number one asset and they have, um, you know, multiple reasons to make sure we stay happy and they do not interfere with our clinical practice and they don't make our day-to-day -day lives different. If anything, they try to make it a little bit better, to be quite honest. So the, the business premise, Peter, is that, it, is that we can drive high-quality health care at a lower price than, than what currently happens in most hospitals. And that's not a criticism of hospitals at all. In fact, hospitals have to have transplant units and complex pediatric units and oncology units and busy emergency rooms. So the hospital is just going to be, it's like you get to, it's like going to the Ritz-Carlton versus coming to, you know, I, I don't want to call me the days in, but a, a value option, right? So that's, that's the thesis or the premise of the business. And can you do things efficiently and profitably when you're more nimble? Uh, and, and, and that's why this business makes sense. In poking holes at that theory, there is an article in, in JAMA this year, and it says, oh, my gosh, when private equity buys your practice, as it turns out, your, the cost of delivery of care goes up. You know, and and how can that how can I say in the same sentence that I'm going to do things more efficiently and be a value option and that with private equity, my cost went up? Well, I, I think I can, because when I compare what our costs are relative to what you pay at the hospital, they are substantially 30 to 40 percent lower. So it is true that if, if Kevin and I join together, we can go to insurance company A or B and say, you know what? We probably deserve a little bit more for what we do because we provide a safe value option, and here are here are our published results. So we can we can drive cost up compared to what it may have been in the private sector alone, but it's still a lot less, uh, and that's what the article in JAMA misses. It's still a lot less than what you have to pay in in the major tertiary center. So okay, let's talk about disadvantages. It sounds like the advantages are economies of scale ability to negotiate as a group with insurance to get better rates. So as to your cost of care goes up, but again, maybe less than the hospital, but tell us why you might not want to do this. What are the disadvantages? What are the downsides you've seen? Are there any? So Kevin, I'll, I'm going to shoot first. I'll let you go. It's kind of like the first day or two. It's like handing your teenage kid the keys to your car and sitting in the front seat, right? Like, holy cow, this isn't how I do it. This isn't how I drive, you know, I've been driving myself. I've been driving you for 16 and a half years and suddenly I'm letting you be in charge. So look, there are going to be business decisions and things that you've done and grown your baby in, in this practice as in ways that you like. Right. And I think that they, when they come from a business standpoint, they may think about HR differently as, as you get larger. They may think about payroll differently. They may think about how you manage your benefits more globally and, and, you know, that may not be perfect all the time. Uh, that said, I, I don't think that I worry about how I deliver care. You know, I, I, some of the things about handing over control as surgeons, you like to be in control of each part of your destiny. Um, and when you, even when you hand over your headaches, you're still watching them very carefully. Kevin, I don't know what you think. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And I think, also, maybe the unknown, you know, we were very, um, you know, concerned about, you know, not only 
we had to absolutely trust the partner that we are initially doing uh, an alignment deal with, um, with our initial private equity group. But as people have probably heard, then there are these subsequent bites where there's the second bite of the apple, quote unquote, or third bite. You know, part of our questions were, hey, we like our first partner. Well, what happens about with the second partner? What if we don't like them as much? And the same thing about the third partner down the road. So I think of it as somewhat of the unknowns of down the road in terms of who purchases who purchases um, your MSO or your group down the road. And, and keep in mind um, that your contracts that are negotiated really go into perpetuity. And yes, people can say, well, they can try to change them. Well, a lot of things can happen, but that's why it's really important to work out your contracts initially to make sure you're happy. And and again, going forward, you know, even the um, the the group that we've aligned with, you know, they made sure that everyone is aware that our contracts will go forward. They're going to come along with us uh, from a management team, uh, team standpoint to the second bite and the third bite. But don't get me wrong; it it does. That's the one thing that you know, that did keep me awake at night. And if you said to me, hey, what are your biggest concerns? It's not at all the group that we've aligned with. It's the fact that what's going to happen in the future over the next, you know, 15, 20 years. Um, so so that's, that's one of my concerns. But I think that, you know, as Paul said, keep in mind, you know, what you have to compare to. Um, you know, nothing is perfect. I know a lot of friends are in academic institutions that, um, all of a sudden, you know, the first of the month they came in and they said, we're changing your contract. So, um, you know, that's not optimal. So things can go bad in an academic in a, uh, academic setting as well. Uh, it clearly can go wrong when you're uh, acquired by a hospital system. And let me tell you, I spent my first four years of my career in the military. And I, I, love, the, I love the people I met in the military and took care of. But it's not the greatest organization in the world to work for. So, um, you know, you have to sort of compare this to other alternatives as, w as well. And, um, you know, there are clearly potential negatives. There's no question. Um, and, and I think part of the, it's very, very important to think those things through to make sure you're comfortable with whoever you're going to partner with and to make sure you address all of those things as much as possible on the front end so um, you don't get surprised later. And I think that if you do your due diligence, and I know Paul's, Paul's group certainly has and Paul has, then you're not going to get surprised later. And, and maybe we've just been lucky so far. We've had a great partner. Um, but in terms of my concerns, it would certainly be not my current partner that, that we've done it with. It's, hey, what's going to happen down the road um, after the second or third bite? And, and I would just add to that, to be honest with you, you know, I'm 55 years old right now. You know, I feel a responsibility to my younger partners. I, I brought several of them on, and I, I really feel a responsibility, and as we went through this, felt a responsibility to certainly not do what's best for just me or maybe some of the older partners. I, we really wanted to make sure that this was what we thought was best for the younger partners as well. So, Peter, there's three concerns that, that people bring to me sort of in a recurrent fashion, right? The first is that... I hear someone will say to me, oh, this is just a big Ponzi scheme. And I think that that's probably a little misinformed view. You recall in a Ponzi scheme, we ask you ask other people to give you money to join their organization. Um, the private equity company actually pays you money to join the organization. So anyone who says it's a Ponzi scheme, 
perhaps doesn't really isn't fully informed. The second one it, it, or two are the one points that Kevin alluded to. There has been in orthopedics no second bite, so you can't guarantee that you'll get paid a second time. Now that said, um, and then you don't know who your future partner is, right? Well, as it turns out, I think in orthopedics we're going to see a series of second bites come come in the next twelve to twenty four months, and Walgreens, Walmart. Walmart actually just went and bought a large medical group. They announced that in the Wall Street Journal this week for um, for an astronomical fee, right? So these second turns are coming. The third concern is probably the most important one is the one that Kevin alluded to. What about the future of uh, earnings potential of physicians that are going to come into the market, right? And that's an important one because the reality is, is that young doctors are the future. They're the ones who are going to take care of us as individuals and be the future of our, our world. So there's no chance that we want to compromise or not allow them to succeed. There's no chance that they can't get reimbursed and earn a salary that's fair market valuable and comparable to anywhere else because otherwise you basically have closed the door in your future for the entire practice, right? So I, I don't believe any of those concerns are, are entirely true. And I would submit that the opportunities in a private equity-owned group are, are equivalent and, and potentially more exciting than any of the other employment opportunities, whether it's multi-specialty, university employment, or you know the, the dying private practice, which is probably the most risky. Can I ask you a question real quickly about this, just to make sure I understand correctly? So we, we at the beginning, we asked what a private equity group is, and you laid out that they're a group that buys businesses to make them more efficient to subsequently sell them. That's the purpose of a private equity firm. And it sounds like from both of you, as part of your contract, you have given up control over who the private equity firm sells you to subsequently, and that that is an expected outcome. That's the end game is that your group will be sold. Is that my understanding of that correctly? Absolutely. Is that, Kevin, is that, that's correct. the same for correct. you? Absolutely. Yeah, correct. And that's the major concern is that your current partners you've picked and they're good, but the future partners, whoever they sell you to, you don't have any control over and who knows if they'll be any good. So Peter, but that, that that's, that's sort of a correct statement, but let's get granular on this. There's zero, unlike a company that produces widgets where the employees are replaceable and you have the factory, you have the outcome, you have the book of business and you have the sales moving forward and you can replace the CEO. You can be like Twitter and knock out half the employees, right? In in orthopedics, you can't simply replace and pull in and pull out a, a surgeon. That you know, you'd be amazed as we talk to each individual group, the due diligence and the thought process we put behind every surgeon and any one surgeon who could potentially exit is so meaningful that there's no group in the world, no private equity group in the world who's going to come in to a to an orthopedic conglomerate and say, We're gonna buy you, even though you don't want us to buy you. They're going to want us to be so on board with them. Fear of surgeon exit is so huge. It affects their bottom line so quickly that, that you know, that's just not going to happen, right? It just, it's just not conceivable for us to get a hostile takeover, to get taken over by someone we don't like. Uh, physicians will leave. I mean, that's the thing, Peter. As Paul said, you can always leave, right? So if somebody buys you, you know, nobody's making you stay. You can always leave. And, and, and as Paul said, that is the last, you're, you're, you know, as surgeons, we're their number one asset. That is the last thing in the world they want to do. And as a result, um, you know, the doctors will get stay. 
in terms of who buys them. So it's not like you have no say. You're going to have a say in terms of who buys you. You're going to interview them. They're going to interview you. And in the end, just like you had your initial partner, you want to make sure that in the end, everybody is happy. Um, but as Paul said, there is no way they're going to buy you if in the end they think that any of you are going to leave or a significant number of surgeons are going to leave because you're going to be unhappy. Now, tell, talk to me a little bit. You guys both mentioned, you know, having a junior partner. You know, I, Kevin, I'm good friends with Justin, who's one of your junior partners. And, I've, you know, he's really enjoyed being part of your group and speaks so highly of you and your group. I'm sure that this has affected, you know, like I know you have a close relationship with him. I know that you're thinking already about who's the next Justin. Once you're purchased, once you're partnered, however you'd like to, whatever words you'd like to use, for that, how does that affect the next hire? How does that affect their deal? How does that affect their buy-in? How does that affect whatever supplementary income they may get for ancillaries? Does that, mm -hmm. how does that play out in your deals? Yeah, so you, you, you have to make it advantageous for people um, who are your prospective partners in the future. Now, you know, quite honestly, um, is it gonna be as good as maybe an initial partner? Um, no, um, but you need to make it so that it's competitive and quite frankly, hopefully better than their alternatives um, and that they do get to participate in things like ancillaries and ASCs. I mean, part of what we wanna do is, you know, we wanna open um, additional ancillary services such as new ASCs and then, our new future partners will get to participate in those. It's not like you cannot participate. In fact, what's the first, what's the second question that a potential partner asks? Number one is, okay, what's my salary going to be and when am I partner or when am I going to be partner? Number two is, what's my ability to buy into an ASC or two? So you've got to um, allow those opportunities to continue for your, your, for your future partners. Otherwise, you're not going to get future partners. So that that is absolutely critical. And as you said, you know, Justin's one of my junior partners. He's not a junior partner. He's my equal partner. He just happens to be a lot younger than me. Um, but again, I, I've gone through this and I wanted to make sure that this was as good for, you know, Justin and, and some of my younger partners because they're going to be around for a lot longer. And to be quite frank, Peter, in the end, from a pure financial standpoint, it's probably going to be a lot better for some of the younger partners than, than some of the older guys. Um, but to your point, the next, you know, who's coming on after that, you absolutely have to make it competitive and you have to offer them, um, you know, deals that are competitive um, and, and quite frankly, better than other options. And part of that is, you know, at least in our model, and I know that Paul is similar, you know, we enjoy academics as well and performing research. So it's really a nice hybrid situation in that we get to um, talk to future physicians who are interested in academic opportunities, but also uh, in a private practice setting where they're getting paid from with more of a private practice salary, but being able to participate with ancillaries such as ASCs. So it's a great question. It's a question that one of our initial questions, honestly, because we didn't want to do this and then have the practice die. We want to have it grow and, and to add, you know, not just partners. We want to hire high-quality partners um, so that we maintain our name and grow. And the only way you can do that is offering opportunities to future partners financially um, when it comes to their pay, 
but also when it comes to opportunities to participate in ancillary services. So Peter, you know, Paul, you bring, what, Paul what are your you, thoughts on that, Paul? You bring up a good point that's a sensitive point and handled differently by every group, but has to be handled well. So there's definitely inequity in terms of the, the, the initial payouts. If, if Peter, you started a practice and you actually put in the MRI, you built the PT, you built the ASC, and someone's joined you two and a half years ago, when you go and sell the practice, you're probably going to think that you're entitled to a, a better or more of a proportion of that practice than as a younger partner, right? You've built more, you've done more. So in the initial sort of distribution of income, yeah, there's inequity. And, and I think that anytime you're talking about money and inequity, there's going to be sensitivities there. That said, you're kind of converting. If you currently make $100 a year in your practice from, from all of your ancillaries, MRI, whatever it may be, MRI, PT, uh, pharmacy, who knows what sort of exciting things you do, you're going to pay normal and ordinary income tax on that, right? So your $100 is going to yield you, I don't know what state you're in exactly, but you know, $48 or $51, right? You now are going to convert your earning potential by giving someone stock or options in this company. And those are going to convert at a, at a capital gains change. And fortunately, that did not get voted out last year, uh, as we worried about. So so now your $100, when you recoup it, it is going to actually get you back $68, right? And when you, when you amortize it over five years, you're actually going to make more money. That's, you know, how does Warren Buffett and all the Wall Street guys get rich? They do it by, by paying capital gains, not normal and ordinary tax. So it, it, it's, it's a diversion. It's a, it's a money, you know, money diversion scheme, but it's got to be good for young people. Otherwise, you can't attract them. Otherwise, other one will go work for someone else. So opportunities there. But yes, it's not the exact same opportunity as the initial buyouts. So tell me a little bit. Okay, so both of you mentioned that, you know, they're, they're working for private practice is different working for a larger hospital system. And that's one of your options other than being purchased by private equity is to sell your practice to the hospital. So in some ways you're selling to the hospital's competitor. That's not that clean, but in some ways. So how does this affect, you know, I'm sure both of you have some cases or have partners at least to do some cases at a hospital that's not owned by your group. How does this affect your relationship with that hospital where you might do some of those cases? I mean, in the same way, the hospital was frustrated when I built an ASC. The hospital was frustrated when I put in a PT. The hospital was frustrated when I bought a new MRI scan. Like They don't love giving up businesses. They don't love giving up revenue. But the reality is we still do a lot of inpatient spine. We still do a lot of inpatient arthroplasty and they're still a good partner, right? Um, we're, just, we're just asking them to share their pie. No, I, I echo that. I mean, really it has not created any animosity or any issues. Um, you know, to be honest, you know, we, we've done joint ventures with our hospital system and, you know, even after they, we explained that this is what we did, they understood our motivation and and quite honestly they said that they look forward to working in the future with us with other with other you know potential ventures so it didn't uh create um you know uh, a negative situation uh with the hospital system because as paul said we still do a lot of cases there uh we still have to work together um despite the fact that you know those of us who do more outpatient don't go to the hospital as much. We still have a lot of partners who do a lot of inpatient joint replacements and things like that. So you've got to work together, but it's really not created, um, uh, you know, a negative environment with us. Again, uh, in fact, 
um, uh, we're, we're meeting with them to look at other potential opportunities and doing it with our, our new private equity, you know, firm. So it's not created a negative situation at all um, with our group. The last question I have for you guys, and this is I think something we, um, I, I, I think it's something we just don't know yet, which is, you know, both of you had mentioned that one of the advantages here is to make make use of economies of scale. And this is one of the reasons why Rothman's so, been so successful is because they've gotten so big so they can really negotiate. So it seems like one of the theses of this investment overall is to combine groups into a larger entity. How does that affect your perception of your job or your group? Has that, has that affected how you feel about where you work and the culture, so to speak, that you no longer maybe work for this tiny little thing, instead you work for this larger conglomerate? Sure. Well, one, one thing I would say, and I, to be honest with you, I think one of the benefits of this model is the fact that you get to maintain your identity and you don't have to all of a sudden blend. And, and let's face it, a lot of us, you know, you join smaller groups and, you know, you're, you're clearly biased and we all have, you know, um, egos and we feel that our group is great and it's better than the one down the street. You know, let's face it, you know, a lot of us have that opinion, although we're friends with our colleagues, but the bottom line is we all feel that our, we joined a group because it's the best group in the area and, and we feel that they're maybe better than the group down the street that we didn't join. You know, the joy of this model or one of the benefits of this model is you can still maintain your name and, uh, you know, it built up, you know, you know, a lot of our, our group's names took decades to build up. Uh, the reputation and the name, and and as opposed to just selling our group and becoming Rothman or the, you know becoming somebody else, um, Kaiser, we get to maintain our name under this large umbrella, and so uh, that that for us was really a big advantage of this model uh, over if we would have sold through the hospital system, all of a sudden our name that we built up over 35 years would just literally go away. And so I don't know how Paul feels and what they did, but we felt that this is one of the advantages of this model. Yeah, our initial thesis when we when we sort of hit the market was to say, okay, we're going to rebrand this into, you know, ortho superstar business, greatest people ever, right? And what we recognized is that medicine is a very local business. So if I go to if I go to Virginia and I and I open up best orthopedic practice brand ever, you know, the truth is they're still going to go to Kevin's group, right? They're still going to, because they're going to go where they trust and where they know local business. So maintaining your own name, and your own brand is actually a really important thing. And an identity, uh, identity, I think is what physicians really relate to. So I, I feel the same way as Kevin does. I mean, look, as you get larger, can you depersonalize things a little bit? Can it get a little more quagmire? Do you have to have a couple more rules in place because you can't be as nimble as when you're a six person group? Yes. Absolutely. Those are concessions that you lose. Right. Um, but the advantage and, and I thought where I was trying to read your mind, which I'm clearly bad at, I thought you're going to say, have you actually realized change? Has the economy of scale actually helped you? Because um, that's really what you want to know is the proof in the pudding. Right. And the answer is yes. We actually finally have better benefits. Right. Our benefits are, are not going to go up next year, which is the first time in the history, uh, uh, at least in, in my practice, that I'm not paying more. Um, have we done better with insurance companies? Actually, yes, we, we have. 
So I, I think we're achieving the goals that we want for ourselves and maintaining the integrity of, of clinical practice and quality care. Okay. There's um so that's super interesting and useful. And I really appreciate you guys giving, you know, like a personal in-depth accounting of it. There's one other area that private equity is really influencing our field right now. And it's an area that I think is somewhat invisible to us, which is that, you know, the companies that produce our implants are also being acquired by these companies and then being sold by them. And I think it actually has some effect upon their strategy, the time course of their strategy. So I wanted to ask you both here, what, what have you noticed this? Has it affected the way you've interacted with industry? Do you think it's going to affect the way that our implants are produced or the relationship we've traditionally had with our implant manufacturers? So the two examples that come to mind right away are one, Exact Tech. Exact Tech was purchased by, I think, TPI Group about six years ago. And I thought for sure they're going to be on their cycle because, you know, a private equity company wants to turn over a business in three in a really great way, five in an average way and seven in a long way. And, and I look at what Exact Tech has done, and I'm not an Exact Tech consultant. I have no conflict, but boy, that company is amazing. What they've done with technology and analytics and prediction of, of shoulder outcomes just blows your mind. So uh, I'm going to give kudos to them there. Now, I'll give you another example of an implant company where I, there's a stapler I was using. And the staplers uh, were getting made in a certain way, and a, and a different private equity company bought the stapler company, and all of a sudden, those staplers are now garbage, right? So I, it just goes to the fact that it's not private. Private equity is not a thing, right? A, a shoulder surgeon, gosh, Peter, I don't need to tell you, a shoulder surgeon is not a thing. I mean, there's a lot of variation, right? Just because you put your name on it. So there are definitely going to be bad apples and bad actors who are going to cut and, and dice and just look to make a cheaper, more efficient product. And there's others who are going to say, I want a really good product and something really good is going to make me more valuable. So that's you, you got to marry who you trust. And you got to marry who's got your vision. You know, I think those are all valid points. I mean, I'm not saying it's bad. I mean, I, again, sometimes the seven-year time course is better than maybe the quarterly earnings approach that you might have as a publicly traded company. But it's it not could, bad. I just think it changes the way we think about it. It absolutely could be bad, right? If someone is just looking to grind blood out of the stone and, and at some point there's no more profitability in a company, you're going to come to an end point where, where it ends poorly, right? And it's happened. It's happened in dermatology where some of the dermatologists feel like they've been forced to make decisions, they weren't doing enough MOs, or they were having one person read the pathology. So it can absolutely go wrong. But if you do it right, I think you can, you can avoid that. Now, boy, in five years when I have to listen to this podcast and tell you how I blew it and how it all went wrong, I'm going to have to eat my hat and eat crow, and I, I won't like that. What are your thoughts, Kevin? Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think that's why it's really important to um, take a deep dive before you think about doing something like this with the group that you may partner with and to make sure that you're truly well aligned and that they have no interest in affecting your clinical practice and that they only have the interest of the patients at heart um, regarding the fact that, yes, do they want to make money? Of course they do, but you've got to make sure on the front end that they're not going to interfere with your decision making. Um, they're not going to interfere, quite honestly. Not that I didn't, I didn't want them to certainly, you know, affect my decision making, you know, at all. I didn't want them to affect my life at all when it came to walking into the office because, you know, 
I have a scribe, I have two PAs, I have an athletic trainer, I have multiple medical assistants. And you know what? I wanted to make sure that, again, when I walk into the office, that none of that is affected. And could you join a group, a practice and not be aware of the fact that, you know, you're going to sign a deal and you didn't think it through and you didn't do your due diligence and they're going to come in and get rid of one of your PAs and say that, hey, listen, you can get away with one PA, you don't need two PAs, or you can get rid of your athletic trainer or one of your MAs. Of course, that could potentially happen, but it's really important to make sure that on the front end that that doesn't happen. And again, in the end, I think what Paul and I both said is they really have no interest um, and to make you unhappy because they understand that, again, you're their number one asset. And if all of a sudden, you know, let's face it, we all talk, right? We all go to meetings. And if, if people start talking to Paul and I, and they get the sense we're unhappy and people are, you know, we have regrets and we, we shouldn't do it. Those, they're, they're never going to sign another deal again. So, you know, they have a, a significant interest in making sure that um, we're happy, we're just as happy after the deal is signed um, as, as what they promised before we signed. So, um, you know, just like Paul, I hope that in five and 10 years and 15 years, I really hope that I can say I did the best thing for not just me, but for, again, all my partners and the partners that have to practice for another 30 years. Um, we wouldn't have done it unless we thought that versus our other current options and, and looking at the tea leaves, what's happening in the market in private practice, we, we thought that this was the best decision and we did not take the decision lightly. We literally talked to multiple, multiple practices um, and really thought it through. And again, maybe, maybe I'm going to be wrong and, and maybe, uh, we'll, I'll have regrets in 15 years, but based on the, every, all the evidence that we collected and based on really trying to do our due diligence and interviewing multiple PE groups and talking to multiple PE firms, um, we, we think, and we hope that we made the right decision for, you know, not just you know, the older partners, but certainly the younger partners as well. Look, left unchecked private practice won't be a thing. And maybe that's what some people in the world want, but I don't know if that's the most right thing for everybody. Well, I think it's a super fascinating insight. I mean, again, as I'm an academic guy and the good news is private equity is never going to buy the state of Utah. So I, I'm protected, I think, but the, um, it's super interesting, I think, to hear both of your insights and, I, I think this is something that's coming for a lot of private practices if they haven't heard about it already. And certainly an interesting insight into the way the business side of things run, but also the way that how do we how do we shepherd our practices into the future so that we can continue to provide the highest quality care for our patients. Anything else either you wanted, would like to add? No, Peter, I appreciate you taking time because this doesn't apply to everybody, right? And I think understanding it no, it shouldn't be. Uh, it shouldn't be heralded as the new coming of medicine, but it equally shouldn't be demonized as as the sellout of medicine. And I think understanding how 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 in private practice we're going to need to struggle to survive, uh, and we can't compete against the university institutions. So um, so what we do want to provide a healthy a healthy sort of financially conscious alternative when when necessary. Well, that's about all the time we have left for this podcast. Thank you so much to our guests, 
for all of our Shoulder Noble listeners out there, don't forget to subscribe and we will see you next time.